everybody, I'm here with my buddy Ben Ortlip for another episode of Beach Talks. So I, I want you to uh, listen to what he's got to say because I think he's an expert when it comes to culture. He's a guy I love to call. I call him Deep Doo Doo. He's 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 got some deep answers, and um, and I think you'll get a lot a lot out of today's conversation. I mean, Ben's done a little bit of everything. I'm gonna let him bring us up to speed on on kind of chronologically what he's done, so that you'll kind of know how he got to where he is today. So, what what did you do after high school or college? Yeah, or? So. Um, yeah, high school and college, I was a major underachiever. When I got to college, though, I went to a small school and kind of discovered who I was. Um, everything was a toy to be played with, and so I ended up working for the school newspaper. I became the editor of the newspaper. Um, I actually wrote and did photography for local newspapers, you know, reporting on things, um, you know, took photos for the yearbook and everything. Yeah. And Soon discovered that this whole, you know, <coughs> visual and, uh, you know, communications was my, th Your my thing. thing back then at first. So I got a job in advertising and um, my real career happened almost immediately when I got a job in advertising. I got this incredible opportunity in advertising. I had a great career, but there was just something, I mean, I was, you know, uh, I was doing commercials, I was working with celebrities and, you know, uh, just hundreds and hundreds of commercials. And it was great, but there was something wrong with something. I didn't know what it was, you know. So career-wise, it was great, but there was just something about it. And I realize now that it was exactly the same as the Great Resignation and, and you know, the sort of, you know, quiet quitting that's going on because really? I was... I was one of the original quiet quitters. Um, and so I ended up getting out of advertising, get out, out of my own, um, started my own production company, um, still would you know do some writing for some of the clients, um, ghost wrote a bunch of books for authors. Uh, and that introduced me to working with some of these people we call thought leaders in the leadership and management like space. I mean, I worked for the Drucker Institute. Um, I wrote content for, you know, I've worked with Tony Robbins, uh, pulling all-nighters, uh, you know, while he's in Fiji. Um, and, uh, you know, content for John Maxwell, Henry Cloud, Ken Blanchard. Um, Rock stars. Yeah, guys that I, and the whole time, you know, that sounds like name dropping, but really what I'm trying to impress about that is the idea that I was learning, I didn't know what leadership was, you know, and so I was learning uh, what these business disciplines were. That's um, awesome. Leadership, management. Um, I mean, I had a business minor in college, um, but I didn't pay too much attention to what they were teaching back then. Right, you know none of us did. Uh, but, um, yeah, so the next thing you know, uh, writing was sort of a passport that got me into working with these different people. And, and once I learned a little bit about the content, um, I was being invited to come in and, and talk about certain principles and, and do coaching and consulting and things like that. This is over a period of time. Right. So, so for the last, you know, maybe 15, 20 years, that's kind of been, I mean, I have the production business going, but um, I've really just focused on, uh, the consulting part of it. And guess what the big topic is that everybody wants to talk about now? What? Culture. Cult culture. Yeah, yeah. so let's, uh, 
let's talk about culture. So what's different about culture pre-COVID, after COVID? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, the biggest thing is that COVID just kind of kicked the anthill. Uh, COVID, it was already stuff that was already happening. Yeah, just kind of got exposed because of COVID. Um, and I'll tell you how it works. So you have to think of, um, you know, when you take a job somewhere, or if you're a leader that's managing a, a company, um, realize that you know there's this employment contract, right? Mm -hmm. But what we don't think about much that's even more influential is we have what's called a social contract. So you have an employment contract, and that's just how much you're going to pay, how much you're going to work, what you're expected to do. But it's the social contract that today drives uh, really the engagement levels, the sentiment. That's the culture. Turnover. Piece. Yeah, that's, it's all embedded in the social contract as, as it becomes culture. Um, most people don't really think of it that way. They don't pay attention to that's it. And so, so what COVID did was, you know, we had, I mean, if you want to really just get down to it, the employment contract was the only thing kind of holding everything together. Um, you know, hey, you need to come here because you need a salary in order to pay. But also that's what we did too, right? Yeah. I mean, we didn't, and, we didn't think we could not work right. on Friday, right? And Gallup will tell you for, since 1990, they've been measuring the state of essentially the social contract. And the social contract has been terrible that the scores are in the low 30s, the thir like imagine getting a 30 on a, on a per grade. Uh, the, the state of the social contract since 1990, you know, it's 33 years, right? Um, and so that was already broken. And then when COVID hit and the government was basically your paycheck for a short period of time, right. That's when a lot of people, and you're already halfway home, you know, you're halfway unemployed anyway because you're working from home. That's when a lot of people just went, hey, wait a minute. I see, you know, I'm so close. I can, I can taste it, you know, to uh, what's wrong with my situation here. Um, and so what COVID did and, and what it made so different about the workplace today is that now people are, once they've tasted the idea of all of this autonomy and, you know, jettisoning the social contract that was so broken before, um, they're now piecing together a different version of their life. So um, what, what's, the, what's the quiet quitting all about? What's the nuts and bolts of that? Well, quiet quitting. Or resignation or whatever. Yeah, what's the word for it? All of that. The great resignation. Resignation is really what? Uh, well, it's people literally leaving their jobs and going to do but some why? other thing. Why? Uh, it's because they don't want to do it anymore. They, uh, m the majority of them are people who um, maybe were second incomes for a home um, or people who had enough solopreneur in them or side hustle in them to go find something else that would pay so the bills. So they give them an excuse to quit, basically. And so it was so similar. It like brought them right up to auditioning what it would look like to quit that they were like, hey, I'm just going to go ahead and do this. It, it was so disruptive. It's the kind of thing nobody would ever disrupt themselves that much on purpose. Uh -huh. But through the disruption, they realized that, hey, I'm practically living like this now. Let me just go ahead and pull the trigger. And so, um, you know, a lot of the surveys show that there's, today, there's a million females missing from the workplace. A million? A million. If you just look at the labor pool in wow. North America, 
Um, there, it's like we just said, okay, here's a million people. We're just taking them out of the workforce. Um, and, and these are people who just used to work and now just don't, or they do some kind of. But we got, we got really low unemployment numbers. Yeah. Are those people not showing up on that because they're out of the workspace? Is that why they're, the people that resigned or didn't go back, these million well, women? It's hard there? to tell because unemployment measures the number of people who are saying, hey, I don't have a job. That's true. And so it's different from, uh, you know, employment numbers measure the, the number of people. It's hard to tell who's kind of in the middle. Um, some people are claiming unemployment while they have a side hustle, so I don't know that I trust the unemployment number. I don't know that I trust numbers right now when it comes to that because um, you know there's a lot of bivocational people who, and one of their vocations is the unemployment office. <laughs> you know? So, so I, I don't know how much of that was intelligible, but it's all intelligible. Um, but all right, so we got we've we. Um, We've had this shift and this great resignation, and now we're in a in a new era a little bit. There are people that are saying, "Hey, people are going to have to come back to work." There are people saying, "I don't want to go back to work." Where 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 are we going? Yeah. Well, um, what's the crystal ball for the next five years? Or yeah. Three? Well, it depends on what leaders do. I think you're going to find, first of all, you're you're finding a fragmented and democratized business landscape. So uh, what has been, if you want to call it good for the economy, is that a lot of people uh, who would otherwise have stayed at a you know monolithic company um, have now been encouraged to go out and try something different. And not all of them are solopreneurs, a lot of them are uh, partnerships, you know, but it's good for small business and small business has always been the backbone of the economy. Um, what will probably happen, you know, is that uh, the zeitgeist of the workplace in general will shift and people will realize that, um, you know, the culture of an organization is a huge part of its uh, business function. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're in for a culture shift that includes um, understanding the workplace better. And that's the work that I've been doing for 10 years is this recognition that there's been a shift in the workplace. There's been a shift in the psychology of work right. to where people used to be, you know, we used to have workplace was primarily an authoritative environment. And then over the last 50 years or so, it sort of shifted from authoritative into influence as kind of the, the driving, the operating system. And if you think about how the social contract has evolved, you know, people used to be kind of almost factory automatons and they would just mm -hmm. kind of, you know, authority worked with people and they were just sort of, you know, tapping their reptilian brain to, <laughs> to reproduce these functions on the assembly line or whatever. And over time, though, they became more sophisticated in the things they want. You know, it's a lot like Maslow's hierarchy. You know, they just sort of started moving up in more sophisticated Right. Uh, what we call uh, psychosocial needs. You know, they wanted something different. And, but for the last 30 to 40 years, uh, we've reached what is really almost a transcendent state for the psychology of the workforce. These are people, Maslow would have called it self-actualization. And these are people who want some sense of purpose. Uh, they want to they find connection with other people. Mm. Um, 
they want to contribute to something that matters in the world. They want to get good at something and feel a sense of identity from what they do. Not just to replicate a task, but they also want to be known as the, the, guy. the guy that does this. And if you think about it, even in the retail world, um, there's been an explosion of things like craft beers and handmade tools and fashions and things like that. It's all a reflection of the psychology of the culture at large, but also the workplace. So that's not going away, and that's driving you know, employers to have to play in that field if they want to be competitive. So... But is that what I mean? What so your opinion going forward though? I mean, if if you're a leader, or would you tell a leader of a company he needs to bring his people back in to to create and keep a great culture? Uh, not necessarily. And of course, it depends on the business. I mean, there was just a study released on uh, the optimal uh, work from home uh, situation, the, the the hybrid workplace right. they call it. And what the study found was that the perfect or the optimal uh, arrangement, and I guess, you know, of course it's different depending on the company, but they said three days a week was the optimal in office, and they also said that the optimal days for everybody to be there were Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Um, well, I love that as an employee, right? Yeah, and I think if you think about it, I mean, that just smacks of autonomy is what it's saying. is like, And it also smacks of person's independent efficiency. You know, we're all sort of recognizing that. We're wasting a lot of time sitting in traffic. I mean, I've been saying this since, you know, the for 20 years, you know. I, and so I sit up here in my little office, and sometimes I'll do stints at other companies or whatever. But what stood out to me was, you know, we'll drive two hours each way in traffic so that we can send emails across to the guy across the hall and back and forth. And it's like, uh, wow. it, it just, you know, the... The amount of FaceTime, um, it's just gotten a lot more efficient since, you know, the COVID epidemic. So it depends is the bottom end. I think it depends. There's definitely a benefit to um, face-to-face. Um, you know, it used to be the, the, the essence of culture. All culture used to happen around the water cooler. Um, and it was so imperative that we have that sort of organic uh, in encounters with each other and, you know, would share information and would share the values that way. And, um, and there's still something important that happens when people are physically proximal, you know, working right. together. Um, but we're also, remember this is coming from somebody who's been re- remote working. Forever. With, with clients that, you know, I never have met face to face with. Um, but what I've noticed is that everybody sort of warmed up to the idea and we all think of each other. Even <coughs> our, uh, I know there's a lot negative said about technology and phones and devices. And, you know, there's the, the pictures in Time Magazine of, you know, the man and the woman in bed and they're both back to back looking at their phones and all that. So yes, that is not necessarily a great thing for intimacy, but when you think about the work relationship, there is a, there's an upside to what it does for communication. And for example, um, you know, we can have asynchronous communication now. And you know, I'll literally be next to my wife, she's texting somebody, I'm texting somebody, and just because of the, the sequence in which communication's happening, 
you know, I'll end up sending her a text message knowing that the time she needs this information um, is going to be later on when some other trigger happens. Or, um, and, and the same thing happens at work, you know. Uh, we're able to essentially pause and park a, a, a conversation with somebody um, or a, a job jacket, so to speak, um, and hand it to somebody in their inbox, metaphorically speaking, so that they can get to it when they're ready. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is the way the psychology of the workforce has changed. It's autonomous, you know. I don't want to talk to you when you're ready to talk to me necessarily, uh, but I, would, I need the information, and if I have the luxury of choosing when, it's going to be later on, because uh, right now I'm trying to, great point. To, to get this. So the point is tons of flexibility, tons of autonomy, um, some independence, um, but mostly let's be aware of things that are changing, things that are different. Uh, because, again, the employment contract is important, but it's the social contract that's making people you know, quit and go find another job. So what, what, you know, I remember one time I asked, you know, you were telling me culture is craft, community, and cause. Okay. Is that still the case? It, it, so that is, those are the three motivators. Tell me about those. For three. someone in a self-actualized state. Okay. So there's, there's actually 15 motivators in the workforce. Um, seven of them come from the management discipline. So they're things that have always been there. They think things like, paying benefits. The reason that everybody walked off the fields into the factories to be told to operate like a flesh and bone robot was because they were getting paying benefits. And, you know, as a farmer, the weather was unpredictable and I didn't even know if I was going to be able to feed my family. So paying, stable. paying benefits, uh, you know, safety from the elements, um, operational organization and efficiency, things like that. Um, workload, stress load, matching people with their skills and talents. Those are all just blocking and tackling management disciplines. And then as you move up, think of Maslow's hierarchy in just three, let's just think of it as three levels. I know there's five or seven depending. So we got like a pyramid. Yeah, so pyramid. The bottom. the bottom level is survival and the management, you know, school of management and those disciplines sort of speak to the survival needs of a worker. Which are food, shelter. Food, shelter, clothing. Okay. Um, and the way they do that is with, you know, paying benefits, okay. operations, okay. things like that. As someone moves up in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is exactly what happened in the middle of the 20th century, um, they start to experience the, the desire for uh, success. So we go from survival to success, and that's... You know, they want some status, they want some recognition, they want the ability to advance their state and, you know, move up in a career, things mm -hmm. like that. And that's where leadership became a thing. Before that, it really hadn't existed except in management circles. Today... Yeah, it really wasn't management, it was leadership. Uh, like in a, in a car factory, right? It was more management to manage originally, it, and then as we got... And other stuff, more white-collar service stuff, it yeah. became more leadership, right? And so all of the bookstores, you know, you go into the business section. Books used to talk about, you know, management kind of things. Um, and then the word leadership just completely took over. And that's because the psychology of the workforce changed from a survival mentality to a success mentality. And so that means 
um, that companies had to start casting vision, they had to start uh, being innovative, they had to start thinking about how to advance their people, you know, not just having you employed, but it's like, hey, we're going to move you up to this or we're going to put you in the leadership development program, things like that. Um, and essentially, the, the greatest emotional shift there was instead of looking at you as, you know, someone underneath me, um, there started to be more of, a, of a, an exchange of dignity. dignity. Um, so, you know, we use the word empathy a lot of times that instead of just looking at you as somebody who could do something for the company and measuring you based on that alone, I, the, the good company started noticing that you were human and that you had feelings and that you had a family. And, and so you see that showing up in the 80s and the 90s. Um, but to craft cause and community, um, as of about 1990 and the year 2000, we started seeing a big shift. And it's because people moved into this top level, the self-actualization level, the, the psychology of the workforce changes. So we went from survival to success. And now people are going from success to significance. And when we entered significance, that's when we saw that the, the needs that people felt, if they were in that category, they wanted to be good at something, that's mastering craft. They wanted to believe in something, that's contributing to a cause. And they wanted to belong to something, that's what we call community. So that's where craft, cause, and community come from. If all these other needs are pretty satisfactory. But they got to all be pretty much met first. They, they have to be reasonably met. Um, and then, uh, you know, they, they never go away completely. And the craft cause of community will still be there, even if some other needs are unmet. But it just gets harder to see these needs by themselves. Um, so so you, you've taken that. And then you've, have you written about it? And then you've got your software. Mm -hmm. So tell us about, have you written about it? Yeah. Um, Is there anything people can get that you've read? I mean, written? I haven't, I haven't published a, a book about it yet. Um, there's some blog posts and things like that. Um, and a lot of that is uh, in the works, you know. But you, now you're doing online stuff or testing or consulting or what, how do well, you, what do you call that? Mostly been busy with just helping companies. So um, at some point it'll be appropriate to, to write a book about it. But I have written, um, you know, pieces of it in terms of, you know, I've written chapters that would explain the principles that drive it and everything else. And, and we've got some case studies, but the, probably the big thing uh, is that we do have a very uh, fine-tuned system now for, for going into an organization. And again, they have their employment contract, but what we do is evaluate the social contract and we can pinpoint exactly um, where something is broken. Um, the leader of an organization can't always tell that, you know, because A, um, they're not in it all the time. Um, but most importantly is there's a lot of communication resistance. You mm. know, people are afraid to say something. They don't know how to articulate it. And so we as a third-party organization can come in and with our framework, um, you know, we're able to say, uh, you know, this is exactly where the leadership dysfunction is coming from. 
um, here's exactly what you need to do about it. And then we walk them through it. Most of our client relationships are two to three year engagements um, where we, you know, introduce the concepts and, and walk them through the process. What does that look like? Is that, uh, is that a dashboard thing or what is the, it? The survey has a dashboard. That's how we So you'd send out data. a survey to the Yeah, we'll send out a survey. The, the, each employee gets, you know, a shiny 16-page report that tells them something about themselves that they didn't know. It's so like a personality thing. Tells you whether you're craft-causing community, tells you what your favorite parts about your job are, and it helps you articulate what you don't tells like. them what they don't like but then we aggregate all that data and we get a report on the company um, we also do some field interviews to get the narrative behind the data so that we can find out that you know oh you talk in their language so to speak and we ask them you know hey why is this score lower than some of the others and they'll say well you know our fax machines don't work anymore and um, or they smoke a lot or whatever so uh, but we can find out exactly what's going on, and it runs the gamut of what you'll find, but it always goes back to one of those 15 categories. And so the other thing that we do is we take some company data, um, we take the headcount, the amount they're spending on labor, um, you know, some basic demographic and financial data, um, you know, nothing uh, confidential or anything, but but we have some cool algorithms that, take the employee sentiment and cross map it with the basic data and so we're able to say this problem is uh, costing you this much in mm -hmm. employee uh, inefficiency so um, it helps to budget things because you know culture things it's always been so nebulous mm -hmm. but um, you know we're able to say hey uh, it's only a $10,000 problem. Don't throw $100,000 at fixing it. Or sometimes we're able to say, hey, look, I would focus on this one because it's costing you a million and a half dollars. If we can just raise that uh, score by 5%, it'll be worth, you know, $16 million and it's only going to cost us 30 grand to fix it. Yeah. You know, so just trying to quantify but does that take time to change all of that? I mean, you said you do these consulting things usually is a couple of years. Why, why does it take a couple of years? Well, it doesn't always. Some of the things uh, are easy to fix and they're quick. Um, but it's, you know, I say two to three years because the size of the organ of it, you know, the bigger the organization, um, you know, there's this concept called change management. Uh -huh. And so you have to be sensitive and delicate. Um, when you, when you shift things around, you can't just come in and With a sledgehammer. On. Yeah. Um, and typically we're, we're not just trying to, you know, put a fix in place, but we're trying to bring the leaders along to a mindset so that they can begin to recognize these things on their own. Um, I mean, our job is to walk away as soon as possible and leave in our path, a self-sustaining organization. So, um, I don't, you know, I mean, that's just, the, to me, that's the win is if they can they can do these do things yeah so how, how how do how do they like if you got a big company you know you got an exxon or some yeah. company like that how do you start relating to or talking to your people when you got so many is that mm -hmm. where your audio video writing comes into play or yeah what? so so one of the categories um does address 
communications. And, you know, big companies like that um, notoriously under-communicate. Um, they not only have, you know, messaging shortfalls, in other words, they, they don't do enough content, um, but they, they also have infrastructure failures, you know, so they don't have a good way to send out a global thing that they're sure everybody sees. You know, they can email it, but email's real problematic. Um, some of them have, you know, their yammers and, and you know, devices, that, you know, uh, Slack is a good one that a lot of people like. And those are great. Um, for a lot of companies, um, it's important to have kind of a, what we call a hub. You know, I call them the virtual water cooler because right. as much as possible. It's important to think about sort of a central clearinghouse that you know everybody's going to see. Everybody has to drink some water during the day, and they see the bulletin board with the information on it. But um, there's some pretty affordable tools where you can create this sort of central thing that everybody sees, um, you know, on a regular basis. It's like an internal channel, basically. Exactly. Um, you know, Yahoo tried to be your homepage for a while, you know. Um, do, 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 do the employees need to hear from the CEO and the CFO, or does it reduce their managers fine? I mean, how do, what, what gives them the most substance? You know, like, okay, this is something I need to think about. It, well, that depends on, you know, kind of who are the culture hosts of the companies. Yeah, the CEO is an obvious person right. to hear from. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they need contact. It's different in every company, but the, the point is that most companies that we see are communicating at about 12 to 20% of what they should be. Wow. And so, you know, we just try to ramp up the content. If you think about it, the world around us has increased. Mass. Yeah, the clutter that, and, and the internal company, um, hasn't done anything to turn the volume up on their voice, and so they're just completely drowned out. Um, the only information that a lot of people get is in meetings with people or an email. Um, and there's ways to fold, you know, sort of the emotional element, the audio-visual piece. Um, you know, we like to use emotions, humor. Um, Would you do video for them? Yeah, that, absolutely. Video is a big part. Would of it. you write what they need to say for them? Uh, well, our we we do a lot of production work if it's necessary. That's not our emphasis, right? But necessarily, you can because that's your background, right? right? Yeah, I mean that's just something um, that comes in handy. It's one of those fifteen extra things, or <laughs> it, it can be. Um, you know, we're not trying to. There's a, there's a danger of bias there, you know, that we think everybody, you know, we do videos, so you need to do videos. Um, and, and that is not a, I mean, we love it when we find companies that have a great uh, communications department, and sometimes we can go, your communication skills are great, but your messaging is off. Let us help you fix that. Here's how to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because we get task saturated too. We love finding uh, ways to use internal resources. Um, you know, just to help them. People are already, most companies are already spending the money. Uh, they're just spending it wrong. And so we like to show people, you know, hey, here's, what about this? And okay, so, so what about, what about dealing with the younger, you know, you got, you got 30 somethings in there and then you got 60 yeah. somethings in there. Is that a different communication style for each one or? 
it's it's not so much a communication style um, as much as it is understanding the psychological uh, contract that exists. Um, and they're different? The social contract. They can be. I mean, just because of what boomers were more exposed to the autonomous, uh, to the uh, authoritative and maybe influence right. kind of operating systems for businesses. And so a lot of those people say, you know, what do you mean you want more freedom and flexibility? You know, you know, get your act together and come to work, you know. Um, and of course, the millennials are all uh, introduced to a different set of expectations. So, um, but the reality is that uh, a lot of boomers have a millennial mindset. So it's not really hmm. it's not really age related. It's more that the psychology of the workforce has changed, and and there's some inertia. You know, some yeah. of the older folks still kind of think the way they yeah. used to. But but honestly, those people have changed as well. They just maybe haven't changed as quickly. So they're getting jiggy with it then, I guess. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they want flexibility too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you're going to do a culture assessment on your company, do you need to get all the C-level people on board with you? Or do you find a CEO that says, hey, I need, like when somebody hires me to come speak, they always be like, man, this is where the deficit is, right? Yeah. And you always wonder, is that, that's their interpretation of the deficit, is that everybody else's mm -hmm. interpretation, you know? So, but do you, is it important for it to work to have as many people on board as possible? I would think so, but. For the, for the assessment, no. The assessment's very objective. It just, if you, if you tell us to go find out, we're gonna go in and we're gonna bring back black and white data that says, you know, here's, here's the state of the social contract. You know, people uh, are either happy or they're not happy. Here's why they're happy. Here's why they're not happy. Here's exactly how you can manipulate uh, and fix things. Um, so, so that's a very objective sort of analysis. And I don't, you know, whoever pulls the trigger and says do it, they don't have to be on board. So just getting the survey done really doesn't matter. Right. But where <laughs> the, the resistance that we sometimes see is how much buy-in is there in terms of, you know, I see the numbers, um, but some people just kind of shake their head and go, you know, yeah, but that's just culture. They don't get it. Or Cul yeah, culture's just, you know, they, they just need to do their job and shut up or yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. Um, and so, there, I mean, you know, I understand it's, it's, a, it's a new era. It's a new kind of concept. Um, and... It takes time for people to, to go through the sequence of awareness to understanding and adoption. And um, there's some people that aren't there yet. So in terms of, okay, now we have the data, uh, we can identify the areas of focus and what they'd be worth to the company. Um, but then, you know, if the COO is kind of, you know, reading other books and <laughs> not... <laughs> not really focused on this, right. he's got some idea already, uh, it's going to be difficult to uh, gain an advantage based on what we know. I got you. Um, so, yeah, you're right. There has to be some, some enough to create some momentum. And then what happens in a lot of places is it's really a factor of alignment and momentum 
to the extent that people in the company are, are first of all, they, they're aware that their culture is impacting their business, um, their profitability, not just their sentiment, you know. Right. I don't want to feel good about it, but, you know, we also, you know, are trying to maximize the effectiveness of our company. Um, to the extent that there's alignment, uh, it's easier to find and create momentum. And as you start changing things, um, you know, it starts to make a case for itself. So, All right, tell me about ghost writing. You know, there's always yeah. somebody that wants to write a book, and there's always people like me that can't yeah. write. You know, I butchered the English language. But from a ghost writer standpoint, what would you say to somebody that says, hey, I want to write a book? What's mm -hmm. the ABCs on what you would say? Hey, you need to do this, yeah. these things yeah. first. Why would you, how would you tell a buddy what to do? Um, so first of all, the distinction that I would want to make is because I believe in writing as personal expression first. Um, and there's a lot of people who should write a book because of what it's going to mean for them to articulate things that are otherwise just struggling for utterance, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so there's value in that. So it's not necessarily just for, you know, I want to get a book out. To be honest with you, most of the books that are published um, are mainly for mom and dad and and um, the 16 people that you coerced into buying and reading one. Right. Um, but, you know, assuming uh, that somebody has an idea for a book, um, the publishing industry has changed so much over the last 20 years um, going to hybrid. It's really, it doesn't have the same gravitas that it once had. You know, writing a book used to be the ultimate gravity around you know, thought leadership. And now it's, it's still strong, but it has lost some of that. So the first question that I like to understand is, do you have something to say? You know, you don't have to have something to say to write a memoir, you know. Um, it can just be a way to organize your thoughts, to share them with your loved ones, um, or to codify a philosophy and a way of thinking that you have that needs to be shared with people in the company or something like that. Um, but I would, when I evaluate it, there's really, you know, that's the first thing I look at is, um, and that's to determine how you should approach the book. Do you need to hire a ghostwriter? Do you maybe just need somebody to do some editing behind it? Um, you know, fit for purpose is, is how, you know, do we need a, a major publisher? Um, so just trying to understand the objectives and they kind of go back to, do you have something to say? If so, what is it you're trying to say? Um, and who needs to hear it? How many of them are there? How many languages do we need to print it in? That kind of thing. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing that I look for is a hook, you know, because mm. a lot of people have just had, like music business. A lot of people have had something to say, but they don't have a, a good way to say it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the next thing I look for is. Um, you know, just the manuscript itself. Um, what's the voice? Are you the right person to say it to this thing that needs to be said? Um, you know, if so, what is your voice? Are you uh, in, in written language? You know, are you a run on sentence writer or are you a person that has rhythm and cadence to, to make emphasis on certain points? Um, just figuring out what's the right voice. Um, and, uh, 
ultimately you've got to make a decision about how to publish it because you can you can self-publish you can traditional publish you can hybrid publish um, and there's a case to be made for each one each one of those yeah um, so if you were going to do if you were going to try to go get traditional published which is everybody's thought you know mm -hmm. I'm going to get so-and-so books to pick me up in New York or kind yeah. of thing when you do that a lot of people don't understand that process. So how would that work? Okay, I got this. I put my thoughts down on paper, and I want to see if it's uh, something that somebody mm -hmm. will take. Do I write the whole book and send it to them? Do I do pieces? How would you? Right. What What do you send to a publisher? Well, um, you probably shouldn't send anything to a publisher. <laughs> uh, you need to have an agent do that for you because okay. uh, they can go right to the mezzanine. And talk to the to the man to the, yeah to the acquisition editor. Um, what would you send the the that guy the well, agent if if you just Google you know nonfiction book proposal or fiction book proposal? Oh, okay. There's templates out there. What it looks like. It, there's a, a whole bunch of variety of how to do it, but that's the communication vehicle for hey I've got a book idea, and no you shouldn't write the whole thing. You're going to want to send in a sample chapter or two. Um, but the book proposal elements are going to make the case and it's really a, a business proposal. It's a business plan for the book. Mm -hmm. um, traditional publishers uh, are going to look at number one, how many eyeballs can you put this in front That's of? That's number one. That's absolutely right. That's one. why if you're Barack Obama and you were the president, they know X amount of people yeah. are going to buy that book. Other than Ben yeah. and Steve, we don't have that yeah. many people that know us, right? And, and Busy editors are going to flip right to the marketing section of your book proposal and tr try to count up how many Facebooks and Twitters and Instagram, how and much social email. media presence you have. So social media presence is huge. Oh, it's everything. It's everything. Um, and you, you don't have to own those yourself, but you have to have some kind of plan to leverage other people's mm -hmm. and it better be convincing because they're just, you know, they're investors essentially you know, publishers are, they're looking at it and they're going, I'm going to pay you X amount of money. I need a return on I'm gonna it. Just pay like you any other product. Yeah, right? I'm going to pay you this to, to, as an advance on royalties to finish the manuscript. Then I got to pay a designer to do the layout and I got to pay a printer. Then I've got some distribution and marketing costs and things like that inventory. But, um, you know, so I'm, you know, anywhere from, uh, you know, 50 to $300,000 in the hole, Starting, starting this off. thing out and so when I look at uh, you know my margin on every book you know and and it's eight dollars a copy it's simple math right yeah to figure out where the break-even point is and then I look at your social media and I go yes or no and then like I guess it's like music every now and then somebody just breaks out and they just that's kind of the way they they try to operate is they try to uh, run break-evens on, on everything and, and hope for the home run, you know, the fluke. Hit. The number one hit. Yeah. So uh, what does it take to be on the New York Times bestsellers list? Uh, not much. <laughs> um, you just have to, uh, uh, you, you have to that week be... Uh, Is it 10,000 sold or something in two well, weeks? Well, it depends. It depends on the week. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, bestseller... You know, if you're the only book that launches, 
you could sell one copy and you'd be the best seller. So it's that, that simple. Week. Yeah, but of course it's not. It, well, so there's a lot of you know paying attention to what else is being released that week. You know, I think of poor Lionel Richie. Uh, who had this awesome number one album, but Michael Jackson's Thriller was released the same year, and he didn't win the Grammy that year oh either. Oh, my God. Um, but uh, it's the same kind of thing. You know, it's like the, the Grammy Awards. you gotta, you got to have time. the right... Yeah, you got to be the right book at the right time. Um, but there's all different categories, and uh, a lot of people have figured out uh, how to game the system. Mm-hmm. I hear that. Um, you know... One one thing that's easy to pay attention to is um, that you can uh, pre-sell copies, mm-hmm. you know, pre-order, get pre-orders from mm-hmm. your constituents, you know, your followers, and they'll all register on launch day. So even though they bought the copy six months ago, um, you know, as a pre-order, uh, it'll register on the day of launch, so you that might makes have, your numbers high. Yes, yeah, so you might have eight thousand people that have, you know, bought the book, um, but it'll all land on October first because that's the. And I understand day. you can hire people to help you figure that out, right? Yes, if you, you got can. the money, you can. Yeah, and uh, uh, some of those people have been shut down by the, you know, people that count that stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but uh, there's still ways to do it. All right, so how about video? I mean, there's a lot of people doing video. I do a lot of video. What do people need to know about posting video on social media or doing video at work? What are some of the things that you see that people don't think about that they should? Um, so uh, the, the main thing is just f- enormous amounts of content. Um, most, do enormous amount? Yes, most people do not understand just how much content it takes to reach uh, ubiquity and saturation, to, to have a real presence. Um, In other words, most people think because they posted a video this week that everybody saw it, they don't understand that... that yeah, one, volume, volume. So you matters. really can't post too much almost. You, you Well, if you're posting stupid things it's just going to accelerate your bad brand (laughs) um but but if your content is viable um posting again you know this isn't a universal statement but for the most part people under post under post yeah and um and if you just listen to gary vaynerchuk you know that's his mantra is to post a lot and to post everywhere. Well, I remember reading him and him saying, you know, if uh, ESPN called you and said, you can run as many ads Saturday as you want to, how many ads would you sign yeah. up for? And you'd run every ad that you could, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Because the guy that saw you in the morning is not the guy that saw you at lunch and is not the guy that saw you at dinner or saw you at 11 right. o'clock at night, right? It's all different. Yeah. And then I really started watching that people look at their Facebook and social media more so at different times. Mm-hmm. Some people are in the morning with their coffee. Some That's people right. while they're eating lunch. So you hit different people at different mm-hmm. times. And so you can almost take the same video and post it four or five times a day and, and, yeah. and, and still not get to everybody, right? Yeah. Probably the second principle other than volume is strategy. So uh, you probably all heard the, the term funnel. Yeah, you know, but there needs to be a strategic function that every video plays. It's moving you down the funnel. It's got to be 
you know, contributing to the idea of moving people down the funnel. Um, not every video has to have a call to action. That's not what I'm saying. But it needs to have a function uh, that leads to some ultimate purpose for people. Um, it could be that you're just trying to get a, an official subscription to your, to your mm -hmm. site. Um, it could be that you're looking to sell widgets to people. But, um, you know, posting content has to have some ultimate strategy and strategic function. So help me work this out then. So I, the main reason why I started this podcast was to increase my speaking business. Mm -hmm. My thought was if I can show people that I'm having these thoughtful conversations with people, that I'm having conversations with people that can help them move their business down the line, mm -hmm. give them some information, maybe that would look valuable. And they say, okay, Steve knows a little bit about what he's talking about. Yeah. Maybe we'll invite him in to speak. But it's not, it's not giving me as much of that as I want. I'm getting some of that. Yeah. How, do I, how do I change my podcast to push it down the funnel? What would you tell me to do? Um, I'm not sure that I know how to answer that specific <laughs> question. Um, I was trying to get my free consultant yeah, thing well, going. Yeah. There's actually no camera over there. There's no film <laughs> in the camera. Um, well, so, uh, you know, if you just think about marketing strategy, the idea is that people have to see something or hear something, you know, X number of times before they even really notice it. Um, so you, you want to have a value proposition that's clear. Um, you want to describe a problem that they're having that they viscerally relate to. Mm -hmm. And what is the problem? Because that's how people move on something is, you know, it's one thing to be entertaining or it's one thing to cast a beautiful vision or something. But, but you know, in terms of marketing yourself, um, people respond to, you know, either the relief of pain or the pursuit of pleasure. So if, right. you're, not, if you're not even addressing a problem that they have, um, that'd be something to look at and okay. say, you know, what does this do for you? So people out there, you have a culture problem. So I'm bringing this culture expert to you to help you with your culture problem. Okay. Well, well we haven't really talked about that. All right, so let's talk about that. So, um, you know, the the problem. If I were to describe the problem to people, um, you know, if I'm trying to relate to people about what's it like to run their business, um, you know, they are running into issues with dysfunctional leadership. They're running into problems. Um, with a lack of intuition in the people that are supposed to be doing certain jobs, not taking initiative. Um, mm. They're running into shortfalls in, in bodies, you know, right now. I mean, every restaurant you go to says now hiring. So they're trying to understand ultimately what is the, the motivational DNA of the workforce today and why aren't they functioning the way they used to? Why aren't they doing, acting, behaving what they're, you know, the way they should? Um, those are the pain points. Why is turnover so high? Um, why is employee retention so bad? Um, why is it so hard to find good employees, the ones that get it? And um, a lot of that has to do with um, creating a center of gravity for the culture. And the way to do that is to really take an, an analytical look at the social contract that exists between employers and employees. Um, you know, is there uh, a clear vision, mission, and values for the, for the company? Um, 
is there a solid employee value proposition that would be a win, create a win-win for the people that work here? Um, in other words, alignment. And so there's ways that that starts uh, right from the recruiting and onboarding. Um, and so um, those are the problems, whether it's engagement of employees, um, attracting and competing in the employee marketplace for good employees, um, you know, productivity. Um, any of those things, you know, the, the blue ocean for businesses today, it used to be, uh, you know, if you go back far enough, it used to be that we were learning how to do product development, you know, how do we... Procter and Gamble. Or yeah, something. and, and uh, you know, developing a product and, you know, ideating a product, that was sort of the frontier at one point. And we got really good at that. And now product development is sort of a commodity discipline that, that a lot of people know how to do well. The, there's very diminishing minimal returns that a company can get by investing more in product development. There's some, you know, and for new categories, there's a lot more. But for most people, product development is not a horizon where you're going to say, oh, we just hit a home run. Um, process design was the next sort of epoch or frontier mm -hmm. where there was tremendous growth in the economy. You know, if you look back at all of the management and leadership and the creation of, of you know, Six Sigma and ISO 9002, those are all process improvements. And so there was a season in which, you know, process design and process development was a, a real frontier and whoever excelled at that could scale businesses better and and so forth so product process we're now in you know the frontier today is understanding uh you know the the human performance and and we've just begun to scratch the surface in that so the 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 blue ocean for most companies is taking the people that they already have, that they already hire, and figuring out better ways to motivate, incentivize, leverage um, the human capital component. Um, and like I said, we've we've barely scratched the surface on that. And that's that. culture, creating a better culture. Yeah. So give me a, a situation. Uh, a cultural icon like Chick-fil-A, what are they doing that the rest of their peers aren't doing? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what they did in terms of those three states. Okay. You know, we had the product phase when Truett invented the chicken sandwich and everybody said, hey, that's pretty good. Um, Instead of a hamburger. Yeah. And so if you think about it, their growth originally was based on product design. You know, hey, that's a good sandwich. Everybody got to get one. And after a while, Truett would have seen a tapering off and a diminishing return on product design and product, you know, production. But the second phase, the the process, he entered into, and Chick-fil-A entered into, you know, how do we scale this? So they created systems and operations, and you know, next thing you know, they have these independent operators, and they're buying the real estate, and the operators are moving into the properties, and they figured out a frankly a pretty genius system for operations um, and they ran that and they've been tweaking it and they still do a lot of tweaking um, 
but if you look at it, there would be diminishing returns at some point on uh. process improvements. And so what they did, which was so brilliant, is about halfway through the, the process phase, they looked ahead and they said, our people are going to be the next frontier for us. And so they began investing heavily in people when they were still in the middle of the process phase, figuring out, you know, they were still fine tuning a lot of process, but guys like Mark Miller and Dan Cathy, uh, you know, they looked and I remember Mark Miller would say that, you know, we need to work on bench depth talking about their leaders. And so, um, I heard one statistic that for every, uh, dollar that they spent, training employees how to make a chicken sandwich they'd spend ten dollars on why they should do it a certain way you know the the culture and values of the company so they were investing in people now what a lot of companies do is you know they'll they'll figure out a great product and they'll scale it you know your uncle bill says hey that's a great idea you should franchise it and they'll create the operations and then they'll just they'll stop after that. They'll, the, the end of their world is, you know, we're working on operations and they'll operationalize and operationalize, but you know, it gets to where they're getting a, a dollar for every dollar they spend on process improvements. And what happens is when the bigger the organization gets, if you don't recognize the people factor, see the thing about people, the people phase that comes to every growing organization, if they survive long enough, is that the number one accomplishment that you make is surviving as a people group that doesn't kill each other. So product design is the most important in this phase. Process design is the most important. And then people is figuring out how to exist as a, a functional people group. What a lot of companies do is they get big and then they just collapse under their own weight because mm. they don't understand they haven't, they've attracted all of these employees but they never figured out how to thrive and and soar as a people group whereas companies like chick-fil-a they actually have what's called a sigmoid curve where you actually have another big climb because now you've got all of this mass of people and you've done the work to have them all pulling on the rope in the same direction and there's like a whole nother level yeah whole nother level and that's exactly I remember when I started working with Chick-fil-A, I think their average store volume was around three million. And they were already doubling down on people development. Um, and they were changing the store design and everything else, all of that stuff that goes with process development. But, um, and today the average store is almost, I think nine or $10 million. Wow. And you know, they've changed the footprint a little bit. Another company that we worked with, um, also a franchise company, um, they uh, doubled in size in three years that by investing in people. They doubled in to top line revenue in three years. And um, if you look at the makeup of the company, it was from 82% of it was from the existing people. It's not like they added people, it was just we've, they figured out how to get greater efficiency, more engagement, take on more business. Take what um, they had and make mm -hmm. it better. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's what a Chick-fil-A does different, that 
they understand all three modes of the company, uh, of the business strategy. Who else is another example of a company that we know that you think's a real got the culture piece down? Boy, I'm hesitant to say who has it. Um, you know, there are there are some there's some good ones. Um, I would I wouldn't say that any anybody in Chick Fil A's area realm was there any any other great companies out there that you just think are the beacons of doing it right um i'd have to think about how i want to say <laughs> that because here's the thing it's most of them i mean i could name a bunch that are doing some things well and and tell you why i think that's great but but honestly um i'm concerned that even Chick-fil-A has had its struggles, and I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Um, they had their heyday, uh, you know, and I'm pointing to maybe 10 years ago, and they're not doing bad today, but but the thing is, they there was a point at time of time in which half of Chick-fil-A's employees had less than two years tenure. Uh, half of their employees had in the lar a large turnover. They, well, it wasn't turnover, it was growth. So, mm. so I think that even they could have done better with cultural density because they're, you know, and I, I was inside enough to know that there were people in there who had not been onboarded to the culture as well as they should have been. And so, I mean, there was conflict internally. Um, that's all I should probably say about that. But there were people who just were oblivious to what it's like to do it the Chick-fil-A way. Half of the employees were new. They weren't all half, you know, that whole half wasn't oblivious, but there were a lot of people. They didn't have enough elders there to tell them how well how it should be. Having elders do it was the old school way, you know, that they, they had grown slowly enough that, you know, people were seasoned into cultural alignment. Um, cultural alignment. But you know, there came a point when they just grew so fast that it's like putting wet firewood on, yeah. the, on the fireplace, you know, it just, it's not going to burn the same way. And I know, mean, I know a guy that's got a local restaurant franchise and I mean, one of the things he's told me is they started franchising and he had to step back because there was no shortage of guys that could write a check to open the franchise. The problem was he didn't right. have the internal piece yeah. together. He said, I'm going to wait and build this, build these managers so that when you write me a check, I'm going to say, you need to pick Johnny or yeah. Allie or Sally to go with yeah. you and make them part owner. Right. And he thinks that's a better way to go. I think, I think he's on to something with that. Yeah. Well, that's, we see that a lot. Um, I, I think I'm hesitant to name names just because name of confidential, but confidentiality, but, but the, you know, I could, I can name a handful of companies that we've talked to, um, you know, one had, you know, sold and bought back the franchise uh, f from the the next owners. Um, and, you know, and in every single case, um, it's it has to do with uh, in every single case it has to do with the the culture not being codified well into the the business plan mm -hmm. you know it's easy to take a check from pe or vc um, and go out and grow and but those people have a completely different uh objective right you they know? won't return on their money right 
Right. They have a three to five year flip. And and I'm not down on those guys. I'm you know, they're trying to do one thing, but usually the founder of a company or the leader of a company, um, you know, is looking to do more than just increase the the sale check, you know, the size of the check for mm. selling it. They're trying to also leave a legacy. They've got employees and coworkers that they've been hired. And yeah. I've got another I've got another client who had an enormous offer from a high profile uh, entity and uh, and she actually said, There's no way I'm selling the company to that guy. Um, he had more money, but um, she didn't like she was like she was thinking about you know what it would do to the company she right. said he'll he'll destroy this place mm -hmm. um, that's good there are not a lot of those people out there yeah most people take the money and run yeah yeah that's probably something to think about is that um, you know there's there's two reasons to build a great culture one is is it really does affect the investment value of a company, you know, the valuation mm -hmm. of a company. But um, there's also just doing what's right. You know, we're, we're a culture at large and, you know, creating jobs for people and jobs that are pleasant for people. Um, I mean, that's our country, you know, and so there's something to be said for, um, you know, if you look at what the banking industry uh, has done with some of the bailout money that the government has given it instead of rebuilding infrastructure, uh, which is the government's intent was, you know, working on the infrastructure, they turned it back into, you know, buybacks of their own stock because they could turn a quick buck doing that. Uh, and it's left us kind of back where we were versus, you know, improving the economy uh, as a whole. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know. I have kind of a, a holistic uh, <laughs> what, approach what, to business, but what other things are people not thinking about in culture? What else would you tell somebody that they need to be thinking about? Um, so I think the main thing though, is just understanding that culture is, is a discipline. Now it's a, it's an organizational discipline. Um, culture is not just, you know, casual Fridays or, you know, just kind of a general feel good, at, you know, balloons and cake and ping pong balls and, you know, pool tables and in the lobby and stuff like that. It's not just an, what we call an aesthetic, um, that it's actually a discipline that it really is about understanding, um, the same way that you would bring efficacy to the, to the stewardship of, supply chain resources, you know, how are we going to uh, protect the efficiency of our systems and operations? Human capital has the same kind of, uh, you know, spectrum that it can either be functioning well or not. And it used to be, you know, in the age of authority, it was like a, an add-on. It didn't really change performance because there was so much motivation coming from just the authority relationship with work. So it, it, I can understand why people thought of it and still, you know, tend to think of it as a fluffy thing that you do as an extra. But to, in today's psychological state of the workforce, it's actually one of the most important cause and effect factors that determines 
uh, employee retention, um, becoming a, a, an employer culture where you, uh, you know, are first to work for a lot of young people. They, they've heard about you, they want to go there, they tell their friends, this is great, come on, let's work here. And that really has a, a dramatic effect on your competition for work, for, you know, in the workforce. So, um, I mean, that's the main thing is just to understand that, that this is not just kind of something extra that you do, that this is implicit to your strategic plan. You know, if you're in a business where uh, human performance is a, an important part of the strategy. Which is most every Most of them are. I mean, there are admittedly some where, yeah. you know, they just, as long as you turn on the switch and, and put the oats in the hopper, it works. Uh, it's it's like nobody has to be happy. It's just they got to make the donuts. Right. Uh, but uh, but for a lot of companies, increasingly, um, human performance and and uh, you know brand competitiveness. You know your internal brand used to be something that nobody ever saw. You know it was mm -hmm. only the external facing brand, and that's why people would fly up to Madison Avenue in New York and and uh, slap a, you know, a logo and do a commercial and, you know, they'd invent, invent places like the land of the Jolly Green Giant or Marlboro Country and it had nothing to do with what the product was. Um, you know, the internal brand, nobody oversaw it. Was it was branding. Right, it was external branding. Yeah. Um, but today with social media, the brand inside the company, you know, gets shown on Glassdoor. And, you know, you can get canceled for something that happens on the inside and it doesn't have anything to do with the So what about Twitter? I mean, you got, I mean, all these people got laid off, all this turmoil's been yeah. going on. What, what do you think about that? I mean, I, uh, you mean the company Twitter? Yeah, well, since Elon bought the company and what's, what would you well, have coached him on to do the, the? I don't know what he's trying to do there, so I can't say that he's doing anything wrong. Um, I think that that investment is insignificant enough to him potentially. Um, he might be just trying to make a point. I don't know what he's doing. Um, but if I were trying to run the company, you know, obviously there's a way to, uh, to, to handle a merger or a takeover in a way that creates better stickiness with employees. If you're trying to clean house, then he I'd, did say, a good job of that, I'd say, well, you know, he pulled that one off. Um, but, uh, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that what's going on inside a company is a significant part of the customer-facing brand now, and that used to not be the case, you know. And so you Makes have sense. to you if you're protecting your brand. It used to be that you know the label had to look good, the marketing had to look good, the customer experience had to be good. Um, today, it's that plus the employee experience has to be a certain way because it's visible to everybody, the customers, the partners. How vendors. they interact with your customers yeah. and all that kind of stuff. It affects the valuation of the company. So what about HR hiring? Are the companies, are they doing that all wrong? Are they, are they doing what they need to do to hire the right people? Um, some of them are. Um, just to give you an example of, of how sophisticated it is, I mean, the ones who uh, the ones who, who know, you know, there's the tactical skills of hiring, right? Um, but there's also the strategic skills of hiring. For example, there are ways to, 
um, really think through and evaluate uh, the cultural potential of different employees. There's ways in your recruiting to naturally attract people. We call it self-selection. You know, they 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 self-select mm. in, and you know, for that matter, there's ways for existing, uh, you know, long-term employees to sense a need to self-select out of a culture. And so, speaking of Elon Musk, you know, there. There were other ways for him to introduce the principles that were respectable and important um, and then have people just say, you know, I'd like to, you know, pursue something different because this isn't really what I signed up That's for. That's not but, culture that I came on, right. Yeah, but even not just the, it may be that those are admirable values that you're pursuing, um, but, you know, I'm not against those, but I'm, I'm kind of for, you know, something else even more. Mm -hmm. Does a does a military have a good culture? Um, boy, I don't know if I know are the they, answer. Are to they that. building culture, or are they building leaders, or what are they building? The, well, opinion? typically the the military, um, they first of all they have an authoritative environment, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the rules are different in military because you can literally tell somebody to do a push up and they have to do it. <laughs> um, but tip, you know, histor historically. Uh, I mean, that's where leadership existed before it existed in business. You know, they had a real clear understanding of, of what leadership looks like. So that's interesting. Okay, so, so in, the, in the military, you're right, it's authoritative, and so you're going to do what you're told to do, or, you, or you're going to get kicked out, or you're right. going to leave, or they're going to run you off. They're not, at, they're not trying to make you excited about what you're doing. Right? Well, or, they are, but they're doing it through different means. It's, it's not an elective day-to-day um, -day experience, but think about it. the reason that you're in the military is because of a cause that you're contributing to, unless you were drafted. Right. You know? um, but even then, they, they would do things um, to try to help you understand the cause that you're supporting. Um, I mean, the military runs the gamut. There's, there's in the, in the, optional elective military there's people who are there you know obviously by choice a lot of kids join the military because they're still trying to figure out authority you know um, there may be kids who never finished wrestling with authority as as kids growing up teenagers mm -hmm. and so they have to oddly enough they end up you know signing up to be under some kind of authority as if they have unfinished business there I think that I've heard it described as subconsciously they're looking to know that there is an authority out there that can control them because it creates a feeling of safety to know that that exists. I mean, so when I think about they allow you to get better at your craft, you yep. definitely know what the cause is, mm -hmm. and there is a community there. Yeah, that's good. So, I mean, it seems like the people that go in and stay there are excited about being there, or they they. they and there is an advancement yeah. factor, right? You can see where you can go Absolutely. if you do what you need to do. Whereas a lot of corporations, you don't know. You got to hope that this manager will bring right. you on, right? Yeah. I mean, so let's look at the 15 categories there as what okay. you're saying. That's, that's a great point because they do potentially. Um, I tend to think of what you see in the news, which is people that are complaining about some breakdown in the system. But they definitely offer you a way to get a paycheck. Uh, they offer you a sense of, of safety physically, maybe not emotionally. Right. Um, you know, you have to be willing to, 
take some abuse, but it's kind of in the context of shaping you. Um, operationally, they're quite well designed, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they train people uh, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, you know, control the, they'll raise your expectations for workload and stress, uh, but they're managing those, at least you could say. Uh, they kill very few people by accident. Um, and then they tend to put people in jobs where they fit. So those are the management disciplines uh, that we So measure. they're good there. Yeah. Then on the leadership disciplines, you know, they cast vision for what they're all about. And mm-hmm. They do a great job of that. Um, they have a career path for you to advance along, and you can pursue that, and, and they're going to tend to promote you uh, anyway. <laughs> um they're innovative, and at least the American Army is, or military is. You know, they have some of the best technology in the world. Now, where they don't necessarily do a great job, or, or if they do, it's kind of in a weird way, is this empathy that they um, they tend to look at what you can do for the military more than they look at, you know, I care about you, except in offline functions you can develop close relationships you know anybody any two people that have been in a foxhole together tend to be kind of friends for life so that's how they meet that that need um authenticity is the the other function of leadership and it probably runs the gamut there's probably a lot of posers who are in leadership and um you know there's a lot of respectable ones too but I would imagine that if there were someone inauthentic, like that doesn't work in the corporate world, you can probably get away with that a little easier in okay. the military. And then, you know, I, I really wonder how many people are self-actualizing as military people. I kind of think that it would be a lot lower than in the free world, so That's to speak. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if they are, yeah, they get to work a craft, they get to contribute to a cause, and they get to belong to a community. So. That's why people stay there for 20 years a lot of times, plus they get paid. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, they've, they've climbed the career ladder. Well, I just, I don't, I mean, I'm not a military guy, but I just was talking to a guy, three-star general. He said, once you become a general, you don't get to decide when you retire. Mm-hmm. The guys above you decide when you're going to retire. Yeah. You can't just like, okay, guys, I want to leave, even though you got your time in. Wow. I didn't know that. So I didn't know you kind of have to wait on them to say, all right, we're done with you, yeah. I guess. Right. I don't know. It's pretty cool. So Ben, how if if somebody wanted to explore that with their company and they wanted to see what their culture was like and they wanted to bring you in to do the survey and stuff, how would that work? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's pretty simple. Um, so the nine one one Ben. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, I would say go to our website, theculturemri.com, um, and there's an info, you know, thing that yeah, you can just uh, and we'll do a demo talk to you all about it and everything the process is pretty straightforward um, we gather some basic data uh, we as a third party issue the whole survey from the outside it's real important for confidentiality you know people give better answers when it's not potentially being tapped by the mother and you let them know that when they're filling out we, hey your we, boss ain't gonna see this we make a big deal out of getting them in the comfort zone on that um, we, like I said, we do some interviews to make sure we understand the, the narrative behind the data. Um, it all shows up on a dashboard. 
Uh, we do a long readout with the leadership team to make sure everybody understands what's going on. Um, and it comes with a full report uh, that has the state of the social contract in every one of those categories, as well as uh, sets of recommendations for what to do to move the needle. The needle, and um, and then if if you know, depending on their interest, uh, most of them are interested in and in obviously changing the culture, not just understanding you know improving it or or fixing it if it's toxic. Is um, you know. It's typically uh, a 12-month kind of an arrangement where um, you know we'll coach them on how to implement how often culture would you transformation. Meet with uh, depends. Some of them we, you know, if we move aggressively, for some companies this becomes the strategic plan for the company, and for those people we're there a couple times a month at least, you gotcha. know, and we're meeting with the C-suite and we're going deep and. You know, some of the companies have called us, uh, you know, the, the leadership team below wonders who these strange people are walking around and, you know, they call us the fifth executive or something because they don't know who we are. <laughs> but um, so we're pretty embedded in that some situations. A lot of companies just need the, the lens. They need to, you know, understand. See? They just need to know what's going on. They have strong leadership that can, uh, but they just don't have the feedback at least accurately, um, and so they can just run with finding that. We do a lot of work with su just supporting existing consultants. So there's an entire consulting firms out there, and we're just sort of like the radiology team uh, for the doctor that, that, you know, we do the MRI on the company, we give that information to the primary care physician, you know, the consultant, and it just helps them and supports the work that they're already doing. That's so, um, but it starts with, you know, info at theculturemri.com uh, and then just opening discussion on what the company needs and what they think they need and how we can support it. So they can just call you and talk about it. Yeah. All right, guys. Hey, appreciate you being here, Ben. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, I hope you learned something about culture today. I mean, like I said, Ben's a guy on that. And um, if you got any questions, don't hesitate to give Ben a call. And um, if you like what you see, please share it on all the social media and stuff when you, when you see this. It helps me get it out. And if you know anybody out there that needs a good speaker at their next meeting, give me a call. Thank you. Till next time.